Paratruth Radio is a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts on KillerPodcast.com. Since the fall of man, a war has raged between good and evil. Over the centuries, this war has distorted the truth. Now the truth is perceived as lies, and lies acknowledged as truth. To this day, the battle continues as we investigate and debate the truth behind the history and mystery of the universe. We are Paratruth Radio. The Thunderbird is a legendary creature in certain North American indigenous peoples, history, and culture. It is considered a supernatural bird of power and strength. It is frequently depicted in the art, songs, and oral histories of many Pacific Northwest Coast cultures, but is also found in various forms among the peoples of the American Southwest, Great Lakes, and the Great Plains. Now Paratruth presents Thunderbirds, The Feathered Storm, with special co-host... Kay Carswell. What's up, para fans? My name is Eric, and I'm Justin. And you are listening to Paratruth Radio. Welcome, 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 and thank you for joining us tonight on a brand new episode of Paratruth Radio. Justin, how are you doing this week? I am fantastic, and I just wanted to welcome you back. Thank you. you. I tell you what, man, you are the Joker to my Batman. (laughs) Is that so? (laughs) Everybody told me I did a good job last week, but it's like... You have this sounding board and you don't have anybody else when somebody's gone. So it's like, I don't know what to do next. Do I I go to the the breaks? What do I do? (laughs) Well, you know, it it was a pretty relaxing, you know, little break there. But to be honest, I'm really glad to be back on the show this week because even though it's only been a week, I missed it. So, <laughs> well, hence why we got back into paranormal radio. <laughs> uh, so, uh, we got an amazing show for you guys today. Uh, we're going to be talking about Thunderbirds with special co-host Kay Carswell from the Deception Detection Show. And uh, she's got a lot of information to provide to us as well. So, let's get her on the line right now. All right, welcome Kay from Deception Detection Show. Thank you, Justin. Thanks, Eric. Thank you for having me on. This is great. All right, so before we get started with the Thunderbird, why don't you give everybody the location of where they can find you, find the show, all that good stuff. Okay, well, if anybody would like to email me, my uh, email address is deceptiondetectionradio at yahoo.com. They can listen to Deception Detection 
at Deception Detection Radio on Spreaker, Podkicker, iTunes, Twitter, and also now Instagram. And the Twitter contact is Deception Detection at Deception Detection and also on Facebook under Kay Carswell or Deception Detection for the broadcast forum. So I hope to hear from some people. Most definitely. I'm, I encourage everybody to get in contact with Kay or ourselves because mm-hmm. we need our listeners' feedback and you guys are our best source for that. So, uh, That's right. email us, paratruthradio at gmail.com. You can email Kay. Always tell us how we're doing. If we have people that you guys like listening to, uh, give us suggestions for other guests, other topics, all that great stuff. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I think it's important to mention that for our fans, we're not using you by having you right. email us and talk to us. We actually, I think all of us actually want to have communication with our fans and build kind of a small family unit, if you will, um, mm-hmm. to kind of build relationships and just, you know, learn and talk. And I know Justin and I, whoever contacts us, we will always respond. We will always talk uh, with you guys. And that's what we want. We want to be able to talk with everyone. We don't want to just be a, you know, one-sided show, if you will, one-sided conversation. Right, and I do encourage you guys to get into our chat room because we are in there every night when the show is up and running. And I feel the same as uh, you two, that it's really important. I want to know who's listening to the broadcast and get to know them. And uh, like you said, it it builds an extended family, and that is there's nothing like it. Right, absolutely. Well. All right, so uh, let's get into Thunderbird. Uh, Thunderbirds, <laughs> <laughs> and not the car. Exactly. Yeah, or the airplane. Or the airplane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, first and foremost, uh, now I know Justin and I. We have done our research, and Kay. I know Kay has done her research. Justin and me kind of focus on two different things. Accidentally, not even on purpose. We accidentally focus right, on two yeah. different sides of Thunderbird. That's a first. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Justin really took the time and focused on personal encounters that people have had with this so-called Thunderbird, this giant bird uh, that supposedly lives really high in the mountains. I, on the other hand, really focused on the myth of the bird. You know, what are the legends? What do uh, the Native American stories tell us about this bird? And I know, Kay, I'm I'm guessing you probably kind of focused a little bit on both sides, probably, right? I did. Okay. All right. And so, you know, it's really good because now we're all very well-rounded and ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, for some of you, some people out there, I don't know, I'm sure most people would do this, any type of media that you're in, whether it's radio, television, uh, movies, writing books, you name it, there's always a certain amount of research that has to go into every single project, no matter what. And I know there's been times way back when, when Justin and I first started, where we would start a show with absolutely no research whatsoever. <laughs> And uh, oh. let me tell you, those are terrible shows. Yeah. Uh, well, they were fun. But we they were also ter- have been told that looking up halfway through, it definitely takes away from the show. So <laughs> <laughs> with that being said, we always have studied before, maybe mm-hmm. have stuff up during just to reference just in case. So for an, any of our listeners out there, we've gotten a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> Sure hope so, anyway. Yeah. 
<laughs> and so anyway, so yeah, we've all got the research. What's really cool, uh, Kay supposedly has a very interesting personal story uh, of an encounter that she had with the Thunderbird, which we're going to get to a little bit later in the show. But before we start and open this conversation between the three of us and any listeners who might be in chat, I would like to just give a quick common description of what Thunderbird is based off of the North American uh, indigenous cultures uh, that had related these stories from when they had first stepped foot into the Americas. Now, the stories go and describe the bird as being large and capable of creating storms and thundering while it flies. The clouds are supposedly pulled together by its wing uh, by its wing beats and the sound of thunder is made by its wings clapping together. Now, it's also said that sheets of lightning uh, will flash from the bird's eyes whenever it blinks. And it'll even uh, throw out individual lightning bolts, which are made by glowing snakes that it carries around with it. So that's the most common description. But it also happens to, that in certain artistic renderings of this creature that the bird is multicolored having two curling horns on its head and is even seen as having teeth within its beaks and that one in particular i think is very interesting because i don't know of any birds today that have teeth in their beaks right well and that's that's kind of where the mythology and the cryptozoology kind of merge a little bit because there are no birds, as to our knowledge, that have teeth. Right. Mm-hmm. I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, because you know more about dinosaurs and whatnot, but I believe there were birds, giant birds back in the day, that did have teeth. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that kind of makes sense from a cryptozoological standpoint. Right, right. So um, go ahead uh, and uh, finish off the mythology on it. Um or is that the that's just the basic well, description? That's in the basic right? description. That's the basic description of the mythology. Yeah, uh, it varies from tribe to tribe as to what exactly it looked like or how exactly it created thunder. I know in some stories it creates thunder by simply flapping its wings, not uh-huh. necessarily clapping them together. Uh, so basically, with every beat of the wing, there would be a th- crack of thunder. Um, which you know, I think when you think of modern birds, they flap pretty quickly so yeah I, you know you would think thunder would just be like boom 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 which doesn't sound like thunder it just sounds like a loud ridiculous noise right <clears throat> mm-hmm. but this bird is supposedly really really big and so what you notice with big birds is they tend to flap slowly you know they'll maybe do one beat then glide for quite a while mm-hmm. then another beat then glide and I think you know there's a very good reasoning behind the possibility that it creates thunder when it flies uh, with every beat. But, yeah, there, there's a number of interesting things, though, besides just the description of the bird. It, it's been said that this bird has been a protector at one point and would protect the world from dangerous reptilian monsters, which is kind of weird because of you know, other than cryptids, I've never heard of many reptilian monsters living. Other but, than, of course, the reptilian aliens that supposedly visit us. True. Other than that, I've never heard of <laughs> reptilian-type uh, creatures that we needed protection from. Mm-hmm. 
Sorry. Okay, is there any... I'm sorry. I was going to ask you if there's anything... (laughs) (laughs) I was going to ask if there's anything interesting that you came across when studying up on this bird. Well, when you were talking about the size and how big they are, um, I pretty much, like you said, I studied on both sides of it. And I found that there used to be what they called a pterosaur, and that was supposed to be the largest flying creature that's ever lived. Mm -hmm. And it had a wingspan that was equivalent to a modern jet. Mm -hmm. And uh, modern jet fighter planes... And it weighed almost 220 pounds. Um, they've actually found fossils of this creature. And they actually, they lacked proper anchor points for the powerful flapping downstrokes, um, which most birds are capable of. Mm-hmm. So this goes along with your theory, or not theory, but what you just said that they were more of a glider. They would flap, they would glide, and then they would flap and glide. Okay. But I couldn't believe 220 pounds and as big as a fighter jet. Yeah. (laughs) That's a big bird. That is. That would feed plenty of people. (laughs) Yeah, it really would. Our our, uh, uh, food shortage... Would would definitely not go away if we oh, yeah. Thunderbirds. Although it's it is a Thunderbird though, so you probably get that feeling of pop rocks in your mouth every time you bit <laughs> down on a <laughs> Thunderbird leg or something. <laughs> that yeah. that would be really weird to bite into a a, a chicken leg and be like. This would be like sitting, people sitting at Thanksgiving and saying, I've got dibs on the legs. I want the neck. I want the gizzards. (laughs) (laughs) Only this one. (laughs) (laughs) They say only this one, 20 people can have the leg. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, that kind of leads us into the cryptozoology of it, uh, and uh, we'll just go over what the description is, and then we'll start getting into uh, detailed uh, uh, stories here uh, for both sides. So the cryptozoology side is, is, it kind of goes along with the mythology. Some say it's a humongous bird that's got feathers, not necessarily multicolored feathers, but feathers, a huge wingspan, and uh, some kind of go along the lines of it has bat-like wings, in other words, very leathery wings, almost like a, tera- a pterosaur or pterodactyl. It uh, doesn't have any feathers at all. Um, now, Eric and I have talked a lot about the dinosaurs and how nowadays they're saying that dinosaurs have had to have had feathers, or some of them had feathers. Mm-hmm. Again, since you're the, the dinosaur expert of the duo of Paratruth Radio, why don't you get into that a little bit? I mean, for the longest time, we always believed that dinosaurs were simply reptilian in nature. You know, yeah. they, they were just giant reptiles, just like you would see today. And therefore, they were featherless, furless, etc., 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 However, some recent findings in archaeology suggest that even the Tyrannosaurus rex, which is most famous nowadays by the Jurassic Park movies, was actually covered in feathers. 
especially in northern southern america and then when you get into canada it seemed that possibly it was covered into or covered in almost fur which you know is kind of weird when you think of this giant t-rex and you're so used to thinking oh it's just it looks like a lizard it's just skin you know or uh, scales right but yeah, I mean, there's plenty of evidence that now suggests that they were probably covered in feathers, which would, in one sense, make sense because the claim is that the birds, uh, the birds that we have today, are the descendants of dinosaurs. And I know many people, will, uh, especially in science, will claim that the birds today evolved from dinosaurs. You know, it's just a progression over time. I know many uh, Christians disagree with that because we don't believe in evolution. Mm -hmm. But when you look at dinosaurs like the Velociraptor, for example, you do see vertebrae and certain things that are very, very, very similar to how birds are built today as well. Even in the way that the bird, that birds walk, uh, whether it be birds or you know, chickens, which I don't even consider a chicken a bird, I guess kind of, right? They don't fly. Poultry means bird, so... Well, look at that. You learn something new every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, 29 years old and I just learned that. <laughs> what do you know? Hard to believe um, you're pushing 30, man. Hey, I know. I know. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I mean, when you look at birds today, they kind of bob their head as they walk. And the way the Velociraptor was built, it's very likely that they would have done the same thing. With every step, they would have bobbed their head, just like you would see a chicken doing or a, a uh, crow or something like that. So, yeah, there are very strong similarities. And so to suggest that dinosaurs one time at some point had feathers is probable. Absolutely. <laughs> You have to stop to listen to this. <laughs> I can't help it. I actually start composing as I go along and start waving my hands like I have a little stick in my hand. Do you? I actually start falling. I, I start falling asleep. I just, <laughs> it's so peaceful. I love the song. And me, uh, I ran into just our, uh, Eric's page last night on Instagram, and he's got the big dinosaur there and for some reason I just fell in love with it and had to post it on Facebook it was too cool it moved yeah I was amazed that was a Toys R Us uh, in Manhattan or over in Times Square and I've never been to Times Square until this past May and I walked in there and saw this giant T-Rex and I was just like oh I can't believe this this is awesome and it roars. I tried getting it to roar while I'm videotape. Of course, I can't make it roar because it's animatronic. But the time that I happened to push the camera button, the record button, it didn't. It didn't roar. I was very disappointed. <laughs> but it's still cool. It looked like it was from Universal Studios. It was so good. It did. It was yeah. All right. Uh, before we get into the actual stories of both mythology and cryptozoology, I think we'll take our first break. Folks, you are listening to Paratruth Radio with Kay from the Deception Detection Show. We'll be right back after Eric's random fact of the day. Now, Eric's random fact of the day. We all know the distinctive smell that crayons have when you open a brand new box. However, have you ever stopped 
and wondered why they smell so good? Or perhaps where that smell even comes from? Well, it turns out, according to factsides.com, that that distinctive smell of Crayola crayons actually comes from the fat of beef. This is Eric's Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading. reading. All right, folks, welcome back to Paratruth Radio. My name's Justin. And I'm Eric. And I'm Kay. And we've been talking with Kay about the Thunderbird and uh, she has a personal experience that she's going to share with us. Uh, before we get into that, um, Eric, did, was there any other mythology you wanted to share before we get into Kay's story? At the moment, no. I think there'll be plenty more to discuss a little later in the show, though, okay. for sure. All right, Kay, why don't you give us that uh, the story that you have? Okay, thank you. I live in Indiana. And I've been here um, in this particular area I live in for about 15 years. And I lived in the country at the time, and I was coming home from work about 1130 at night. And it's pretty quiet, really dark road to go down to get to my road. And once you get on it, you have to go for two miles to get to my place. And I made a left-hand turn. It was a dark night. I don't remember any sunlight. And all at once, coming from the upper right side and swooping down was this huge bird. I mean, it was black. The wingspan was at least 15 feet. And it shocked me enough that I almost wrecked the car. I remember uh, just hanging on and saying a prayer, and it was such a shock. I, I just didn't know what to think of it. I thought, this isn't a normal bird. Owls don't usually look that big at night. Mm -hmm. And that's been, let's see, that probably was about eight years ago, maybe nine, that that happened. Interesting. Okay. And this is something you, you, you remember very vividly, correct? I do. Okay. I do. It's just like it happened yesterday. And uh, did you think anybody thought of you as this? <laughs> Honestly, I didn't say much to anyone except people at my house, my family. Oh, okay. And that was it. And I I didn't know what to say to anyone because, like you just said, people might think I'm cuckoo. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I just kind of, you know, kept it quiet. And, you know, as the years have progressed, then I've said something to certain people here and there. But, I mean, it's an event that happened, and... Why not tell people about it? It was different. Right. It well, wasn't an everyday experience. <laughs> and then 
if I'm not mistaken, you had mentioned uh, that it was cloudy that night, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And and yet there wasn't there, there were no storm clouds or anything like that. It wasn't no. windy. Uh, I'd imagine it probably wasn't very windy either. No. Um, which is very interesting because, see, this is what starts bringing up questions for me. Because if it was a Thunderbird, and according to the myth, the stories and the legends, that the Thunderbird creates thunder and lightning and wind and possibly rain, according to some stories, and yet none of that was visible at any point during the time. That's so, right. Was it really a Thunderbird? Now, I'm not saying that that's all Thunderbirds do, but I would imagine that whenever it flies, it would create thunder. There's a reason it's called a Thunderbird. Um, <clears throat> so then that brings me to a question, because of course, personally, me and I know Justin too, we come pretty much from a, a, uh, we, we try to debunk everything. Skeptical sort of. We're skeptical, skeptical when it comes to many, many things. Um, <clears throat> and for those of you out there who, are questioning it. I was skeptical about God at one point, so yeah. I come skeptical at all things. <laughs> well, and then we became Ghostbusters. If we had a webcam going right now, uh, that'd be a hilarious video of me <laughs> dancing to that song just now. That's a great song. <laughs> it is. It really is. And you know what? I was dancing too. So hey, that's not sad. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but we actually back when uh, Justin and I used to do uh, paranormal investigations because we haven't done any in a while now. But we used to turn on that song every time we went out. It got us pumped up and ready to go. Yeah. But um. That, that's a rabbit trail and off track. Anyhow. As always. <clears throat> as always. <laughs> the reason I just mentioned that I was skeptical about God at one point is because I know there are many people out there who don't believe in God and many people who will hear me say, well, I'm coming at this from a skeptical standpoint and they'll, they'll be like, wait, but you're a Christian. How are you not skeptical of God if you've never really seen him and so on and so forth? And that's why I wanted to make a point that I was skeptical at one point and was given proof through him that he's real. So with that said, I have a reason to be skeptical of things. I'm allowed to be. And what is the Thunderbird? Only because I've never seen it. That is the only reason I'm skeptical about this particular being, creature, the one that's capable of creating thunder and lightning and so on and so forth. So <clears throat> with that said, is there any possibility that what you saw that night at midnight, eight years ago, is there any possibility that it was maybe mistaken identity? That perhaps it wasn't as big as you think it was? Maybe there were shadows or something coming off the wings due to the headlights of the car or moonlight shining through the clouds or possibly any uh, lights on the side of the roads from houses or so on and so forth that might make it look bigger than it really was? Well, there was no moonlight that night, and the stretch of road that I was on, there were actually no houses. It was out in the middle of the country. But as far as it being something different than a Thunderbird, yes, it could uh, be something different. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't don't argue that because I don't know exactly what it was. 
Right. But I, as far as the wingspan, I remember that precisely because when it flew down and went back up, it surprised me that I did not hit it mm-hmm. because it swooped right right down over the front of the car and up over the windshield. Mm-hmm. And you probably thought, thank goodness it didn't have to go to the bathroom when it did that. <laughs> That's what I thought when I realized I didn't have my moon roof open. Yeah. <laughs> that was one package I didn't want. <laughs> that would have been rather disturbing. Delivery yes. from the clouds. <laughs> That would have been fun to explain. That would have uh, explained. I wouldn't have had to tell anybody. Yeah, that was Senator Bird. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, so I'm trying to think of different possibilities of what this bird was. Uh, and one that comes to mind most clearly, because you're talking about 15-foot wingspan, that's huge for a bird. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially today, that's way, way, way too big for anything that's living today that I know of. But <clears throat> one bird in particular... And of course, it's a little out there because Indiana is very far from the coast, the Atlantic or the Pacific. But pelicans ha- can get a wingspan of up to 12 feet. Is there any possibility that maybe a pelican, for whatever reason, a rogue pelican decided to fly from the coast all the way to Indiana? And that's possibly what you've seen. Wow. Wow. I guess that it's possible. I mean, it, it just didn't didn't seem to move the same way. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and Indiana, um, Indiana, Illinois area, we have a history, honestly, of from the Thunderbird uh, going back in its origins and times. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's highly possible. I think that the closest thing that I was able, you know, to find. And it's something that we had talked about before is the fact that it could have been even a, a huge hawk. Mm-hmm. Some of the hawks are gigantic yeah. and or even a mutation in nature. But whatever it was, it was huge. And it was black. Mm. And had- pelicans don't fit in with that color. Yeah. Well, most hawks, too, are not... Black. They're usually very dark brown, but not black. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's then it, why, it kind of, to me, like you're saying, it didn't have the thunder and uh, right. all that going on. That's yeah. why, it, to me, this particular instance falls into the cryptozoology compared to the the mythology of it. Right. And actually, real quick, before I say something else. For those people out there who don't know what cryptozoology is necessarily compared to uh, science, uh, what or zoology even, is that something, Justin, that you can give them a quick definition of? Sure. Help them uh, understand. Cryptozoology is basically, these, these people call cryptozoologists, study cryptozoology, and they research things that are basically outside the norm of normal zoology right now. That can fall under Bigfoot, the Thunderbird, uh, Loch Ness Monster, or something as simple as a extinct tree frog that we thought to be extinct, but we're finding that it's still in existence, which is happening with a lot of creatures nowadays. Mm-hmm. So basically, a cryptozoologist, what they do is they study the creatures that people claim to have witnessed but have absolutely no evidence or very little evidence to support those claims. Uh, and that is 
pretty much in a nutshell what Justin just said. Yeah. I was trying to make it as simple as possible. No, and you did. You, you did. I just wanted to add a little more because some people are probably like me and still confused. Like, what the heck did he just say? Um, <laughs> Sadly, listening to old shows that we used to do, you used to get confused a lot. You yeah, got I know. much better. Oh, that's nice. Aww. See, you do mature with age. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> and you do get smarter, too. So, oh. Some people no. do. <laughs> yeah, this is true. It's also sad. Yeah. Yes. Now, the one reason that I brought up the whole pelican theory, and again, I know it's a crazy theory, and of course, pelican, most pelicans are white. There are some gray pelicans out there. Right. So, just saying, there's a black figure that you saw. But the one reason I say that or brought that up is because this is something I just learned literally yesterday. It's pretty interesting. Bull sharks. Do you guys know what a bull shark is? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, so bull sharks had this ability to adapt from salt water to fresh water. I actually had researched this not too long ago. Okay. Surprisingly, I don't, no one knows exactly how, but when a bull shark starts to enter fresh water or vice versa from fresh water to salt water, its entire body goes through a chemical change. Every single organ in its body goes through a chemical change. Certain private areas of the shark goes through a chemical change. Everything does so that it can adapt to the new water almost instantaneously, which is why it's able to do this. And it's one of two sharks in the entire world that are capable of going into fresh water, which also makes it one of the most dangerous sharks. Right. Because it also has the most testosterone of any creature on the planet. I was going to say, I believe that that goes back to one of your random facts. Mm -hmm, It does. And what's interesting is that these sharks, the bull sharks, have been found 2,100 miles up the Amazon River. They've been found as far north as uh, Illinois. And back in 2005, two bull sharks were found in Lake Michigan. They were juvenile bull sharks. They were actually dying because the water was too cold for them. But what is interesting is that those bull sharks were pushed there because of Hurricane Katrina which means they had to come up from the Gulf of Mexico. Right. That's a long way for a shark, a saltwater animal to go. And of course it can adapt. And so I'm just thinking, you know, if a bull shark would travel that far from the Gulf of Mexico all the way up to Lake Michigan, why can't a pelican travel from somewhere on the East coast to Indiana? You know, it's true because we have, where I live at, it's not by Lake Erie or an ocean, mm-hmm. and we have tons of seagulls. Mm-hmm. So it's possible for anything to adapt and move inland, especially when they're looking for food that they're not finding where their natural habitat is. Yeah. Right. Yeah, well, and we had all discussed at one point uh, before the show, too, that you know, seagulls are actually eating garbage now compared mm-hmm. to uh, scraps of sea creatures that because they are scavengers. And, you know, there's it is weird that they would adapt to human junk food, basically. Right. Well, and, you know, I think, well, there's two possibilities as to why this is happening. One isn't very serious. The other one is pretty serious. 
first one is it decided to follow the rest of the Americans and decided to get fat. <laughs> so they're eating French fries and McDonald's wrappers. You know, they don't really eat just the McDonald's food. They got to eat the wrappers too. Right. <laughs> um, so, so that's one possibility. The second, which actually would probably make more sense, and this is something else I just mind, mind everyone. This past week was Shark Week, and so I'm spending my entire <laughs> evenings watching stuff about sharks. And for those who may watch the news or read the newspaper, there have been a ton of shark attacks in North Carolina and Florida lately. Yep. Way more than normal. And one of the very big reasons for this is due to the amount of fishing that is going on off the North Carolina coast. And the problem is that we humans are taking the natural food source of sharks. And so they're turning on people because that's the only food source they could find. I mean, of course, they're not thinking like, oh, there's a person. I'm going to go kill them and eat them. It's just they're so hungry. That's what they do. You know, it's not really their fault. And so I'm thinking at the same time, if these animals in the sea don't have a food source, then obviously these birds, the seagulls, also don't have a food source. And so they had to push in to the mainland. They had to move closer inland uh, to find something else to eat. And that's where why they're, you know, now here in Cleveland and in Indiana and Virginia and, you know, do they got any up by you, Justin? Uh... That's a no. I think um, I've, I think I've seen <laughs> seagulls, but we do have uh, lakes and the river and that sort of thing that they go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Random fact: rabbit trail, real quick. I saw a seagull once. It was kind of cool, and I named him Steven Seagull. <laughs> oh, oh, the bump man. <laughs> <laughs> that is probably the worst. Pun I've ever heard. Oh, come on. Whatever. Yeah. Eric, sorry, I gotta agree with Justin on this one. <laughs> <laughs> I was afraid oh. it was gonna be Jonathan Livingston. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that, that's kind of the point of, of kind of, uh, ghost hunters uh, to kind of debunk everything as Eric had said and to find a, a more logical explanation to what you had saw okay so I'm um, I mean you you openly admit it could have been something else but in right. your mind do you think it was anything other than a, a gigantic bird I know whatever I saw it was gigantic and it flew okay yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you guys, too, the fact that you know, when we look at things, and, and you have to look at everything from every angle, because we are held accountable to discern everything. Yeah. Just because one person says it does not make it so. And that's why I am uh, so open to the fact it may not have been a Thunderbird. Right, right. Well, and one thing that we always say on on our show is the fear factor always takes effect. So if something just randomly flew down in front of you, your mind can shape it into whatever whatever form it is. And, uh, you know, that's what a lot of 
people try to debunk the Mothman too is mm-hmm. a gigantic uh, owl, and uh, there have been cases of the Mothman chasing cars and all this other sort of stuff. So uh, that's right. That's why it's hard to to debunk these things because most people say they know what they saw, they know what they saw, and that's great, but. A lot of them don't admit it could have been something else. A lot of them, it's that's what it, what I saw. That's what it is. End of story. So that's actually good to know that you're very open minded to think that it it could have been something logical, not necessarily a thunderbird. Mm-hmm. Right, because if if I was really what I call stiff necked about it, I could actually be missing out on what it. If it wasn't a Thunderbird, I could be missing out on what it what really and actually was. And I would love to find out for sure. I mean, I can't go back to that day, but right. I can look at what the all the possibilities are. Right. Now, have there been other people who have had these sightings as well in your area? Well, not in the area that I live in, but about two hours south of me in Bloomington, Indiana, there was a sighting, and there was a guy named Dale A. Drennan. He's a researcher in the field of cryptozoology, and he'd had a report from a family that they had seen a Thunderbird, so he made the trip there. And while they were traveling on the road, they saw a bunch of people pulled over, and they were all looking up in the sky, and there was a huge bird. Hmm. And that was... um I can't remember what year that was, but then the most recent history that they've been able to log of a Thunderbird sighting was July 25th, 1977, and that happened in Illinois, and there was a a 10-year-old boy named Marlon Lowe, and he was playing outside with his friends, and his mom was out front of of the house talking to some other people. And once she heard her son screaming, and everyone turned around, and all at once the sky was blackened from the shadow of this huge bird that was picking at her son, at his clothing. And the bird actually picked him up. And at that time, the child weighed about 60 pounds and lifted him off the ground. And she was struggling to get a hold of him. And the bird was high enough that when the bird released the talons from on him, he fell and knocked both of them over. So it was high enough to give that much of an impact. And it was really bad for them because the child got picked on at school. The mother, the father, they changed their phone numbers. The, the dad wanted to close his business. And they didn't talk about it for decades. And then finally, in 1997, the Discovery Channel, they decided to make a program with this man, now Marlon, and it's called Into the Unknown, and it has to do with his encounter with the supposed Thunderbird. But that is the most recent case that's been documented. Okay. And that's close. That's about... uh, Probably two to three hours from me. Okay. So I'm in that region. Mm-hmm. 
Now, folks, you are listening to Paratruth Radio. We're going to take just a moment and listen to Justin's Paranormal Headlines. So stick with us, and we will be back shortly. And now, Paratruth Radio's Paranormal Headlines. Hey, Parafans. Justin here with your Paranormal Headlines. These headlines are from unexplainedmysteries.com. Filet Comet could be home to alien life. Astrobiologists have suggested that Comet 67P may be home to live extraterrestrial microorganisms. The potentially groundbreaking revelation is based on an analysis of some of the comet's more unusual surface features, such as as its organic-rich black crust and icy crater lakes. Dr. Max Wallace of the University of Cardiff and colleague Professor Chandra Wickramasinghe presented evidence at the National Astronomy Meeting in Wales today suggesting that these features are strongly indicative of extraterrestrial microorganisms living beneath the ice. Rosetta has already shown that the comet is not to be seen as a deep, frozen, inactive body, but supports geological processes and could be more hospitable to microlife than our Arctic and Antarctic regions, said Dr. Wallace. Both Filet and Rosetta have found evidence of complex organic molecules on the comet and the processes responsible for several of its geological peculiarities continue to remain a mystery. These are not easily explained in terms of prebiotic chemistry, said Professor Rickerman Singhi. The dark material is being consistently replenished as it is boiled off by heat from the sun. Something must be doing that at a fairly prolific rate. Life could thrive in alternate universes. Some universes might provide conditions more favorable to the development of life than our own. So far, the search for extraterrestrial life has focused exclusively on our own universe, but with an increasing body of evidence suggesting that our universe may be one of countless others that exist within an overreaching multiverse, comes the very real possibility that life could be thriving in places that we could have never even imagined, let alone directly observed. In a new paper this week, scientists have put forward the idea that some universes might offer conditions that are inherently more favorable for the development of life than others. In a universe where all the stars and planets are clustered quite close together, for example, a life-bearing world might do just fine heated by nothing more than the light of nearby stars. Such a universe could be home to thousands of habitable free-roaming planets that simply drift through its galaxies without needing to be part of any solar system. Ultimately, the possibilities for life within the multiverse as a whole are particularly limitless. And this has been Justin with your Paranormal Headlines. This was a segment of Paratruth Radio's Paranormal Headlines.
What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Paratruth Radio. My name is Eric. I'm Justin. And I'm Kay. Just before the break, we were talking about Thunderbirds. In particular, we were talking about encounters with Thunderbirds, especially in the Indiana area, because Kay, our special guest co-host, encountered one there herself. Now, just before we went to break, you told us pretty much all of the most recent encounters uh, in the area in which you live. Yes. And I, I know not everywhere in the entire United States has had encounters with the Thunderbird. Uh, it, it's most prominent, I think, uh, along the western coast and the northern states. But it has also been seen in the Great Plains areas, mm. which is really weird because According to some of the stories that have been passed down by Native Americans, the Thunderbird has usually stayed really high in the mountains, even above the clouds. It likes the altitude, uh, especially when it comes to creating thunderstorms. And yet in the Great Plains, well, let's face it, it's a Great Plain. There's not much height anywhere for it to go. So... What do you think people might have been seeing in the Great Plains? You, you think they're just seeing a Thunderbird flying over, like flying by, or do you think that maybe Thunderbirds are stay, were staying in caves if indeed they truly existed? Hmm. Well, I've read about them being in caves mm-hmm. a lot. I live in the Great Plains, so for it to fly over, I could see that it may have been traveling from one mountain range to the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are no mountains here in North Dakota. So right. that would be my best guess is, is if these, these indigenous tribes saw anything, it was, it could have been a Thunderbird flying from one, one mountain range to another. Right. Okay. You yeah. said that you have heard stories about them being in caves. Yes. Um, in fact, the story that I just said about the most recent encounter they hired someone to help them track down. It was actually two birds together. And they tracked it, and they, they said it was destroyed, but they wouldn't uncover where that was mm-hmm. because they didn't want people going to it. But I'd also read that um, they were really into... See, I took the other side. I found more about how destructive they were. Okay. And in Illinois, uh, there was a tribe of Indians called the Illini, and they called the bird the piasa, and that means bird that devours man. And they had trapped, there were some uh, settlers, people as they traveled, and they would encounter these birds, and what they would do, they would find out where their nest was, and it was usually in a cave, and one specific group, they took boards and nailed across the cave so the, the bird couldn't get out. And it also had its nest in there. And they set it on fire, and it destroyed the bird and its eggs uh, by asphyxiation and fire. Um, but where I live at, there's no mountains. So okay. apparently the, the cave thing is more of around this area, Illinois, because they don't have anywhere super high that they can get to until they get into southern Indiana. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Well, so then we have two possibilities. Either A, they're in caves, or B, they're flying overhead. Uh, <laughs> well, that's pretty much all we've got. Right. And right. as we've said, there's there's no like definitive on the Thunderbird. It's right. either there is a mythological side or there's a cryptozoological side. Right. Uh, so um and all the all the stories that I came across, I mean the uh and this is actually contradicts both what Kay saw and what you researched as far as protection and and destruction mm-hmm. um, th- from all the accounts of the cryptozoological explanations uh, that people had saw this thing was just flying by and this and people like shot it down or it it somehow had died and they found the carcass or right so there was there was no malice or protecting them from like a giant bear it was just flying overhead right it's true makes me think though about the cave part going back to what you two were talking about the possibility of it being a a bat when you think about the caves the way that they like to they live in the caves the bats do Mm -hmm. and they're nocturnal yeah right so yeah. it, to me, that could have been even a mutation of a bat. It could have True. been. I mean, look, uh, in the Philippines, there's a bat known as the flying fox. Uh, I know, Justin, I've talked to you about this before. Yeah. Kay, Kay, have you ever heard of a flying fox? Never. All right, so a flying fox is pretty much the world's biggest bat. It stands approximately three to five feet tall, just standing uh, and when you get a chance, anyone out there who's listening, if you get a chance and you don't know what a flying fox is, jump on your Google and check out flying fox. When you see it, you'll be amazed at how massive this bat is. Uh, and I know I've told Justin numerous times that I would love to have one as a pet because <laughs> it would be frightening for anyone who decided to break into the house when a gigantic bat comes walking towards you. <laughs> um, and now, of course, these bats... That was awesome. I love that. <laughs> Perfect timing. Justin, good job, my man. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, all this great music tonight is too awesome. Uh, yeah, so the flying fox, that is, I mean, it, it's definitely not a North American bat by any means. And I don't uh, think it, it talks like that either, so. No, not at all. Uh, <laughs> but. Regardless, I mean, it's a bat that definitely could be mistaken or considered a Thunderbird. Uh, It it does have fur like a normal bat, obviously, on its body, but its wings are bat-like. There's just flap of skin, you know? But it's definitely interesting, definitely crazy and weird and creepy and cool at the same time. Which, again, would account for a lot of the cryptozoological uh, accounts. But, I mean... And we'll get into these stories, too, really fast. One dates back to 1890, where a couple of farmers found a creature that had no fur, no feathers, but bat-like wings, uh, a head, as they described, as an alligator. So to me, that particular account sounds more like a, a pterodactyl or pterosaur. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there was an account from 1948 in uh, Overland, Illinois. Three people saw a bird that had wings that were... It, it basically looked, as Kay had said about the uh, pterosaur, it looked like a small jet. It was it had a huge wingspan, uh, as they described the body as a almost like a naval torpedo, but they don't describe the head. So, okay. uh, to me, again, coming from a standpoint of what the story is saying, it sounds like no feathers, no fur, anything like that. But they, I mean, there's one that dates back to 1977, one that dates back to 2002, and even one that dates back to 2007. So there are oh. sightings that are recent, some in Alaska, right. some in Texas. So, uh, and each <clears throat> one, it, each one varies. Some say right. feathers, some say no feathers. So uh, it's hard to, to discern what these people are actually seeing. Right. So you, the only thing that I, I could possibly guess then, if indeed the thunder, Thunderbird is real or what may appear to be a Thunderbird, is that these people are seeing two completely different creatures. It would only make sense because the history behind the Thunderbird, based on the myths and legends that were passed down from one tribe to another uh, and to, to the people's children growing up from one generation to the next, is that the Thunderbird had feathers. In fact, it closely resembled the bald eagle, uh, according to what the stories tell us. Mm-hmm. So either people are seeing two different creatures or much like some mis, uh, misidentified coyote, which have been considered chupacabra because of mange. Right. Is there a possibility that these birds have some type of mange type of disease that cause it to lose feathers? Uh, but then that brings up yet another question, though, too, because, and correct me if I'm wrong, but birds need their feathers in order to fly. Because if you were to clip certain feathers from a bird, it's incapable of flying. Right. Right. Uh, you know, so if it were to lose feathers, how is it flying? How are people seeing this? So it has to be two different creatures. Right. As far as, yeah. The way not indigenous just to the U- the United States. It's, it's been seen all over the world. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And, right. And that gets into the mythology of it, too, because uh, there was a giant bird in the old country, as it's put, uh, which is Europe and uh, or Russia, and it, it's called a rook. And, again, there's both sides to it. There's the side of it was a protector, and then there's a side of, uh, like, for example, a group of a village destroyed a rook egg and it attacked. Again, mm-hmm. that that would be more a instinctive thing of an animal to attack something that's attacking its kin. So it it kind of goes along the lines of both mythology and cryptozoology because uh, in the mythology, if I'm not mistaken, from the Thunderbird, there really is no uh, instinctiveness, so to speak, like it would be an actual animal. Right. Okay, hmm. you were telling us some stories, and you had mentioned that in your research, the majority of the stories you came across was that this bird would attack people and was considered more of a threat than a protector, as I had mentioned earlier. Right. They would... Uh they were predators. They would actually feed on the people. 
Mm-hmm. And then they would fly away until they were hungry again, and then they would come back. Okay. Now, I have well, two stories. One is just a quick summary. The other one is an actual story. I'm going to – just a small story I'd like to read on air real quick. But I have found in my research both sides as well. Um, the side in which these birds would attack people – only would attack when protecting another tribe. They would attack one tribe while protecting another tribe. And it was almost as if this Thunderbird was, in a way, summoned, you know, when, when, when a tribe was being oppressed by another tribe. And the bird would come out and destroy, you know, whatever tribe it was that was uh, inflicting this lesser, this, this weaker tribe, if you will. And so in that sense, I came across many stories in which these birds would attack. However, for certain tribes, I found out that this bird was a protector. And you'll see as I read this story right now, it's a very short story, that we've been talking about this this Thunderbird as being a myth and being a cryptid. And those are the only two sides. But there is a third side. And the third side is that this creature, this bird, is a supernatural being, an entity, uh, something of a spiritual nature. And so I'm going to go ahead and just read. Uh, I'm actually reading this offline. And it's just a quick summary of the story. <clears throat> it's called Thunderbird and Whale. Whale was a monster, killing other whales and depriving the tribe of meat and oil. Thunderbird, a benevolent supernatural being, saw from his home on high in the mountains that the people were starving. It soared out over the coastal waters, then plunged into the ocean and seized the whale. A struggle ensued. The ocean receded and rose again. Many canoes were flung into trees, and many people were killed. Thunderbird eventually succeeded in lifting whale out of the ocean carrying it high into the air and then dropping it. Then another great battle occurred on land. In one of many variant versions of the myth, the sound of the whale dropping into the sea is a source of thunder. A young boy of a Vancouver Island people, the Comox, was fascinated by the sound of thunder and heard it from behind a point of land. He crossed that point following the sound of thunder and discovered the spectacle of the Thunderbird seizing and dropping the whale. The Thunderbird saw the boy and told him that the story was now his, and he had the right to wear the Thunderbird mask and wings at the potlatch. Um, so that's that's just the story in summary. That's a quick version of that story. And we're seeing that this bird is, A, a protector of a, uh, of a tribe, B, a supernatural being from somewhere up high. C, which is very interesting and something we haven't covered, this Thunderbird was capable of speaking to the boy. Right. Uh, which is very interesting to me. Now, there, there's been scientists, geologists, who have tried to debunk what this story really means, you know, uh, and where it possibly came from. And some geologists uh, in the 1980s found evidence of an earthquake, which was powerful enough to send a tsunami all the way to Japan and hit the uh, American Pacific Northwest in 1700. And some people claim that the Thunderbird and Whale story is a description of this 
of this disaster, which would make sense because again, we're, we're talking about this creature plunging into the ocean and seizing the whale. And then suddenly the ocean receded. Yeah. And, and that's something that's common in tsunamis. The ocean recedes and then suddenly it rose again. And it says many canoes were flung into the trees and many people were killed. When you see a tsunami, such as uh, the one that happened in Indonesia so many years ago, that's exactly what happened. Boats are flung into trees, they're flung onto land, so on and so forth. And this happened over and over and over again until obviously the tsunami ended. But, you know, do you think, based on just what I had mentioned here, that this story is indeed a made-up you know, myth based on a real life natural disaster, or is it a true story of what this Thunderbird is and what it happened at a certain time? Just from the fact that the bird spoke to the boy, kind of tells me that it was something more than an explanation of a tsunami. Mm-hmm. Okay. Me too. That, uh, that's how I see it, and also the fact that it could have been their way of explaining a tsunami after the fact, that their mm-hmm. mind couldn't handle what happened, that it was just a natural disaster. Mm-hmm. They had to come up with a way to, to explain it. Okay. Well, and that makes complete sense, because, I mean, even coming from a Christian standpoint, when you look at the Bible and how things are expressed and explained, uh, Ezekiel being one of them, he talks about God coming down uh, on his chariot, and he describes this chariot in all kinds of different, you know, descriptions and terms and just That's things right. that make it seem weird, you know. And I know many UFO enthusiasts believe that the description that Ezekiel gives in Ezekiel 1 is a description of an unidentified flying saucer, which, I mean, personally, I've done the research and I don't think that's what it is. I think it was Ezekiel trying to explain the glory of God and his angels. And at the time, he and the people of that time just didn't have the words to express uh, what it was they were truly seeing. And I think that that's definitely the possibility here as well. I mean, maybe there was a a, uh, tsunami at some point and they didn't understand what it was. The first tsunami they've ever noticed, you know, it's not like they knew, it's not like there was some news crew out every day, like, oh, there's a tsunami over here (laughs) 20 years ago, that's what this is. You know, they're like, what is this thing? And, you know, you start coming up with stories and as time goes on, these stories develop. And I know even, I've made up stories in the past. I'm not saying I was a liar, but I was. And <laughs> not you, Eric. <laughs> I'm not saying no. I, I was, but I was. Yeah. So, <laughs> you like that? So anyway, <laughs> you know, there's been stories that have been told that I've even told where they just start to change over time. And there's been, there's been stories where they're real stories. But as you continue on year after year after year of telling the same story, it develops into something more. And it's like, but wait a second, what happened in the original? It's like playing telephone, you right. know? Yeah. It starts off mm-hmm. as one sentence, and it becomes a completely different sentence by the end. Yeah. So, so yeah, definitely I wanted to share that story. I thought it was very interesting. And I also thought the fact that they call this Thunderbird a benevolent being was interesting enough, and it would actually lead us into this next part of the discussion. We covered the myth behind this bird. We covered the cryptid uh, side behind this bird. Let's talk about the spiritual side of this bird. Okay. You, you know, many stories claim that this bird 
is indeed a, either a god of some sort or more often in stories we find that it's a servant of God. And there's two sides here. The very first one I'm going to take, it's very weird and interesting and in how it correlates with Genesis 6 of the Holy Bible. Right here, I'm going to just go through this real quick. There, there's stories of these thunderbirds coming out from the sky, coming down from the sky, landing and pulling its feathers off almost as if they were wearing a jacket or a blanket. And as they pull these feathers off, they would transform into a human. And then these new transformed birds that are now humans would go off and marry people, women, men, if they were female birds, I don't know, it doesn't specify, but you know, they would come down, change form, get married, have a family. And then of course, whenever some kind of incident would happen where another tribe would come in, uh, try to take over another tribe's land, the story says that these humans would suddenly put their jackets back on or their blankets back on full of feathers, transform back into the Thunderbird and then would go out and destroy this other tribe. And like I said, this is very interesting because it's very similar in a sense to what happened in Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, the, the part I'm particularly referring to says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And that's Genesis 6 too. Yeah, seriously, man. <laughs> and so that was Genesis 6 too. And of course, there's a lot of debate as to what exactly these sons of God were. So most, I think the most common explanation is that they were angels. The other explanation is that they were basically people who believed and trusted in God and then fell away from God to pursue women of other tribes who were worshiping other false gods. Uh, and that's basically what, what eventually created these so-called Nephilim after marrying these women and having children. And the Nephilim were obviously these almost godlike beings that lived on earth and, and were super strong and they're giants and so on and so forth. However, I'm going to say it probably wasn't human beings that were, you know, in relationship with God. I'm going to say there were angels. And the reason I say that is because there is another story, a story called Job, which also talks about the sons of God. And in fact, Job 1.6 says, One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And according to the Hebrew text, the sons of God in the book of Job is angels. They are angels. And it's very similar to the word that is used in Genesis 6. So it is very, very safe to say that the sons of God in Genesis 6 are indeed fallen angels or demons. And it's funny how, again, it correlates with these thunderbirds coming out of the sky and you know, fallen angels, wings, and having relations with women, marrying them and having children and so on and so forth. Right. So then the question is, are these birds really birds or is this story passed down at some point about angels? Are these birds angels and fallen angels even? 
Well, nowhere in the Bible does it say that the the fallen angels were restricted to Israel. So, yeah, I, I believe it's possible that it's depicting the same story, just in a different region. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think so too. I think that they were the fallen angels. They had they had powers. Mm-hmm. Um, they were known as men of renown because of their size and their abilities. Mm-hmm. And they had a way about them that they became irresistible women. They were not good. They were evil. And I believe that they were part of the third of the angels that were cast out with Lucifer and uh, from them. Mm-hmm. So I, that, that makes sense. That would be a good way to explain it. Right. So, yeah, so that in itself, that, that's kind of a dark story and an interesting one, you know, that, that definitely correlates with the Bible. But there is another story that claims that these Thunderbirds aren't evil, and in fact, they're actually servants of God and do good uh, to protect the people. And the story says, the Menomini of northern Minnesota tell of a great mountain that floats in the western sky on which dwell the Thunderbirds. They control the rain and hail and delight in fighting and deeds of greatness. They are the enemies of the great horned snake and have prevented these from overrunning the earth and devouring mankind. They, the Thunderbirds, are messengers of the great sun himself. Few keywords here. It's very interesting, right? Few keywords. <clears throat> They're talking about a great mountain that floats in the western sky. They... They're considered messengers of the great sun, which in this case is God or a God. And it says that they control the rain, the hail, and delight in fighting and deeds of greatness. When you look in the Bible, you do hear of certain angels having control of certain elements, uh, especially in the book of Revelation. And so what it comes down to again are these Thunderbirds just some kind of description to describe angelic beings that are there to protect them? Or are they just simple, some kind of animals? And what you're saying, that can even be partially related back to the Bible because another word for angels is messenger. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, so that's the possibility right there. I don't know. I can honestly say I really don't believe that there is a mountain floating in the sky. Right. But it sounds like what they do is try to keep Satan under control. Mm-hmm. Well, so that, that story, you could take it kind of a little bit of either way. Right. Well, right. and the mountain in the sky could be the Native Americans' term for heaven, too. That's true. If you take it that That's way. right. I mean, when you think of uh, the book of Revelation, it, it talks about the kingdom of God coming down on the clouds. Um, you know, it, so it's... And how often do we talk about Mount Zion in the in the Bible as well? Um, and that's... I mean, Mount Zion is considered both an earthly mountain, but also considered 
heavenly one as well. It's described in two different ways. So, yeah, I mean, this could easily be something spiritual by in nature, but described in words that the people at that time understand. You know, trying to relate it in some way to what they see on an everyday basis. The fact that they're messenger, yeah, the fact that they're messengers of the great sun himself is also interesting because the great sun, uh, goes by, it could be a number of different things. Uh, I've heard about Jesus being considered the great sun in the fact that he is the sun god because it's the biggest star, it's the brightest star, and we know that Christ himself in the book of Revelation again calls himself the great morning star, the bright morning star. It can also be, uh, Ra, which is another sun god, which is also described in the Bible. <clears throat> and so, I mean, was this great sun himself that the Native Americans uh, believed in back then, was it the god that we know? Was it Jesus Christ, the Lord, King of Kings, Lord of Lords? Or was it Ra, or perhaps a completely different god that I personally don't even know of? Who knows? Yeah, it's hard to tell. So it could have been whatever person believed in, whether it was in good, then it could be referring to Jesus. And if they were from the other side, then it could be belief in the other God's little G. Right. Well, coming Interesting. To, to the end of the show here, let's... Uh, Let's get everybody's viewpoint. Kay, from your standpoint, what do you think that this creature could be? I think it could be actually a mutation. It's something that, with the way the world is today, and they're finding, you know, two-headed frogs and uh, vegetations even changing, um, I wouldn't be surprised if it would be a mutation in nature. Due to um, what man does. Right. Mm-hmm. All right, Eric, what about you? Uh, well, back when Native Americans first came to America, there was a prehistoric bird living at the time, which is now extinct, and it's called the Aeolornis. And it was a massive, massive, massive bird. Uh, the, the wingspan was about 16 feet, and the weight of the bird was 51 pounds. And it, you know, that bird in particular, I think at the time was probably already on its way to extinction. So it's probably pretty rare. And so when, when people had first settled in America and this bird was on the, uh, on the West Coast, which is where these people would have traveled down to first and foremost before spreading over to the Eastern side of the United States, because they would have traveled over from Asia through Alaska, come down through Canada, most likely near the coast because that's where most of the vegetation was, most likely, and then into America along the California coast where these birds were. And I think they were so rare that when people saw them, they could only think of one name, and that was a Thunderbird because they probably lived really high in the mountains or off some cliffs uh, over the Pacific Ocean, and they would only see them once in a while. And I think it's a very good possibility that the Thunderbird today isn't necessarily, well, let me rephrase that. It is a myth uh, to a certain extent, but I think its origin, its basis, 
is indeed based off of a real life bird that once lived. All right. Well, and I actually come from both sides. Actually, I I think there is the the physical side, the uh, cryptozoological side of of whatever people are seeing, whether that's the remnants of pterodactyls, because as far as we know, they could have still been living and outlived the the Arctic freeze, and uh, it could be some. Maybe it's the a relative of the Alornis or. They don't know that it got extinct like most of the animals they're finding nowadays that they thought were extinct. And I think it can come from the mythological and spiritual side of it where these people were coming into contact with angels and demons, but they weren't necessarily in Israel. They were here in America. So I think it it could be either or. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, Kay. um, Really fast, we wanted to give you a chance to give all of your information again so people can uh, can find you. All right. Thank you. Um, you can reach me at Deception Detection Radio at Yahoo.com. And if you'd like to listen to the broadcast, it's Deception Detection Radio on Spreaker. And you can find me on Podkicker, iTunes, Twitter. Um, now I'm on Instagram. And you can find me on Facebook by Kay Carswell. Or if you would like to look into the forum on Facebook, it's Deception. Oh, can't talk. Deception <laughs> Detection, and that would be for the broadcast forum. So, right. I hope you all will take a listen and drop me some emails. And I just want to say thank you so much, Justin and Eric, for having me on. I've had such a blast. You guys rock. <laughs> well, thank you, Kay. Thank you for being on. Right. Thank um, you. Really fast, too, guys. We wanted to give you some quick announcements uh, before we head out. First and foremost, Paratruth Radio will be at Scarefest 2015 this year. And uh, we will be sporting our brand new Paratruth Radio t-shirts with our new logo on them. So uh, come check us out. Uh, we will be broadcasting live so we can uh, tell you guys where we're at at any particular time during the broadcast so you can come and find us if you are there. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Eric has a quick announcement about The Revealed. I do. Uh, the Revealed is a movie that I write and am currently writing. And that's part of the announcement today. But it's also a movie that I'm producing and directing this upcoming fall, uh, in particular the end of September, early October. A couple of things. First and foremost, I'm turning it into a family event. My one sister, Erin, is the main actor. She is an actor out in Los Angeles. She has done a number of different plays. Uh, she's also done a number of different films. So I am flying her out to Virginia to film. So that's awesome. And I'd like to welcome her to the team. And also my other sister, Ellie, my youngest sister, she has just joined the team as crew where she's going to be the makeup and hairstylist. So, uh, it is really, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, me and Aaron have always been interested in film, always been wanting to do film. Ellie, not so much. So the fact that she's willing to come out and film for 10 days and be a part of of this movie and really help out, because she's a great hairstylist. She's awesome when it comes to makeup and even her choices for costume and clothing, you know, unlike any other. So I'm really excited and glad to have both of my sisters helping me out on this project uh and so i just want to welcome them and thank them for joining me also 
the original script that I had was complete, and then I decided to change things. So I'm actually rewriting the script right now. It will be done within the next couple of weeks. But the good thing is, it makes the budget a little smaller for me. And, yeah, which is a big deal. And it also cuts out a significant amount of locations that I would normally use. I had five locations originally. <clears throat> I've cut it down to two locations uh, by by the way I've decided to rewrite this thing. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'll let everyone know when that's complete and finished and ready to go. Uh, meanwhile, if anyone wants to check out uh, the Facebook page for The Revealed, it's at facebook.com forward slash The Revealed. Also, if you'd like any more information about it, such as the synopsis for the film, you could go to uh, paratruthradio.com and click on the Creative Works tab where you will find the full synopsis of The Revealed and also a GoFundMe button at the bottom if you're willing to support me financially. I am a college student. This is a thesis project for school. It will be graded, but it will also be a festival piece. I do plan on running the festival circuit uh, next spring, most likely at the Cleveland Film Festival and then eventually getting out to New York, California, and a number of other places. So it'd be really great if you're willing to support me. There are some perks depending on how much money you give. Uh, and I could run from actually like getting just a t-shirt you know, with a reel down there, the poster, a DVD, which is really awesome because you get a copy of the film when it's done. So you get to see what it looked like and what you invested in. Uh, and then, of course, there's if you, if you have the money and you're willing, it's a little expensive, but there is an executive producer perk as well where I will actually put you in the credits um, as executive producer of the film. So definitely if you want to check that out, it be much appreciated or if you can share that information with other people and of course like it on facebook again facebook.com forward slash the revealed all right sounds awesome all right and one final announcement before we go and that is the, the paratruth the brand new paratruth logo is in completion we just have some few quick things to do for it so stay tuned for that guys it is still going to be the same paratruth as you've all been listening to we're just tuning up so to speak so stay tuned for that so we'll real quick i was going to say we 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 do plan on i guess bringing the logo into play probably in the first week of August. That's our plan. So we're going to start bringing it in then. Also, the first week of August, most likely that first Sunday when you hear the show, we're going to probably have a brand new intro for our radio show. Uh, So stay tuned for that. It's going to be a couple of different things, but like Justin just said, same good old Paratooth Radio. Just tweet. Just just tweet. Just a little fancier. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right, folks, that's all we got for you tonight. Uh, so definitely tech, check out uh, Kay's show, Deception Detection Show, right on Spreaker, as well as Paratruth Radio. And uh, we will talk to you guys next week, same time, same channel. I'm Justin. I'm Eric. I'm Kay. And we will talk to you guys next week. Peace. If you enjoyed this episode of Paratruth Radio and you would like to listen to it again, or are interested in listening to any of our past episodes, then you can listen to them on HD at our website, paratruthradio.com. And you can also find us at Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, iTunes, Spreaker, and YouTube. 
And of course, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for brand new updates of our show every day. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) (laughs) Right.